Listening Dog Media. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. No one wants any more shiny DJs. They're androids, it's AI. <laughs> if they want a human, then that means what's the most human thing is our flaws, is getting it wrong. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I think if you're good at what you do, you should go through you know, many different versions of yourself on air. It's like a snake shedding a skin. If I could describe my career as one thing, it's simply become being more me. And for this episode, I'm with a a DJ known for award-winning radio shows on XFM, Virgin Radio, Absolute Radio, and currently as host of The Breakfast Show on Gold 104.3 in Melbourne. It was about following what's in your heart, even if you don't know whether it's going to work out. And it was like, oh God, why did I come to somewhere more competitive? (laughs) I'm now really thinking I made a big mistake. They call it a comfort zone for a reason. I need the comfort zone. Why why did I choose this? He's won more awards than any other radio DJ. He's written kids' books. He was once told that every time he opened his mouth, people would hate him. And his new autobiography is No One Listens to Your Dad's Show. Hello, Christian O'Connell. Hello, Chris. And uh, just hearing your voice... It reminds me of something I've missed in the last three years of living in Australia, and that is the wonderful voice of someone who has clearly worked for the BBC for a very long time. It's clear enunciation. I don't have that. I'm not BBC house trained, but it, you sound like you're on world service. You're connecting to a foreign correspondent who's a frontier DJ. That's me. It's lovely to hear your voice. It's an honour to be on this. How to DJ? I feel, I do feel slightly fraudulent. I think anyone who's craved does, don't you? You're always fearing that you're going to get the hand on the shoulder going, time's up, you've had a good run. Especially because just the other day when I was on air, I still told the time wrong. And I'm like, I've been doing this 23 years. There's a clock in front of my face. How can you tell the time wrong? So I don't. it's not about how to DJ. As long as we're okay to calling it how I DJ, then I'm good to go. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, in fact, in the book, don't you, how uh, radio is ruled by time. Well, breakfast radio is, and that's all I've ever done. I've done other shows during different day parts, but the bread and butter has always been breakfast radio. You know, I've done Fighting Talk, obviously, for Five Live and covered various shows, but breakfast shows are all about time, getting there before the show starts and just keeping the show and having a bit of an eye, one eye on the clock, and then your other part of your brain has got to be chatting to the caller or you're in the middle of a story or uh, whatever you're doing. So, yeah, it does, it does make you slightly time-obsessed, but I kind of... I also like that as well. I wonder if uh, where you are now is perhaps, is it more laid back or not? I guess my first big question for you, Christian, is you've made me really self-conscious, by the way, about my voice. No, uh, don't. It's a wonderful (laughs) thing. Christian, uh, was moving to Melbourne the best idea you've ever had? Biggest gamble. Yeah. Uh, Biggest gamble. Best idea. Yeah, I, the last three years have been the most challenging of my life. How could they not be? You know, you move the other side of the world with your two kids, two daughters who are entering teenhood, and you don't know anyone, and you're starting again as an unknown. And how could that not be really hard? I mean, it was even just like finding doctors, the dry cleaners, the Wi-Fi, getting a phone. You've got to start from scratch. It was like I was in witness protection, but not because there were great posters of me everywhere around the city and also I was on a breakfast show, but... 
I was hiding in plain view. But yeah, it's uh, it's only the biggest gamble, but also the most enjoyable uh, uh, one at the same time. I've never enjoyed radio more than now. And I've always enjoyed doing radio. And I think if you're good at what you do, you should go through, you know, many different versions of yourself on air. It's like a snake shedding a skin. And this last couple of years, I've, I've never been a happier on the radio. Uh, I do get the feeling it was all building up to this in some strange way. XFM was a wild five years. Couldn't get away with radio like that now. Wouldn't do it right, like that right now. That's not who I am. But Virgin Radio was great. And then Absolute was great. And so this is just different. And I think if you're still trying to connect with an audience, and that's not just unique to Breakfast Radio, you should still be evolving both as a person and as someone who talks on the radio. I was about to say broadcaster, but I always think that's quite a pretentious word. It's a bit pompous. It's pompous, isn't it, really, for just mumbling between Nickelback songs. What kind of a kid were you at school, Christian? Um, I was, you know, smart Alec, but also very nervous and self-conscious, like most boys, I guess, and girls, really. I could make my friends laugh, but I had a couple of other mates that were very funny as well. But I was more obsessed with making the teachers laugh. That, to me, was like a higher level of operating. I thought, oh, wow, I've got a grown-up, an actual grown-up who doesn't appear to like kids or even like his job that much, is underpaid. But I've got them to laugh and they've had no choice but to. That, to me, was the ultimate. I was obsessed with trying to get the jokes that they would find funny. They were like a code to crack. That's what I was like at school. In terms of grades, bang average. I was good at English. Everything else I struggled with. I actually failed GCSE maths. I got grade D. And there were no clear signs I was ever going to do anything with my life. I remember... The careers. Do you remember like at school you had the careers teacher? He had a computer system. I'm a child of the 80s. So this was 1989. He had a computer system called Cascade. And he sort of fed into it things you were interested in. And this, is, this was life coaching back in 1980s. He fed into this like giant mega computer, like a BBC Micro. What things I was interested in, like working in different areas, communication, entertainment, I said. I said, I basically want to be like Steve right in the afternoon. He put it into the computer. And it spat out, I think it was like a funeral director. And I was like, how, what? I've not said any of those things. So yeah, I was never, there were no early signs. You know, when people like actresses and that, and when they're Oscars, I will thank my drama teacher who saw greatness at 13. However, there was one teacher I had called Mr. Taggart. And he did do something which actually did light a little um, fire in me. He called me back one day after a class. I thought I was about to get told off. And he said, what do you actually want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be a geography teacher, because I kind of idolised him. And uh, I thought, that must be quite a nice thing to do. And he said, don't do that. Anyone can do that. You should go into, they used to call it back in the 80s, light entertainment. I grew up on a council estate. It was a very working class background. My dad worked in a car factory. Mum was an NHS nurse and very proud of how hard they worked. And there was no one in our family who uh, had ever done anything like that. But I, I, at an early age, I was obsessed with Steve Wright in the afternoon and Billy Connolly. Those two things still inform me to this day. And he said, you, you could do something. You've got a real gift for making people laugh. And I remember it changed me, just in a little way, but it changed me. I remember walking home, feeling for the first time in my teenage years that maybe there was something unique and special in me. And what an amazing thing to do that was of no real benefit to him, Mr. Taggart. And I'll always be grateful for that. I always think it's amazing what one teacher, in one line, what they can do to a child. And it was, a, I guess it was the first time your mum and dad always go, oh, you could be a comedian or if you want to be like Billy Connolly, there's no reason why you can't be thinking, yeah, you have to say that, you're my mum and dad. But a teacher outside of that sort of circle of your parents saying that was very powerful for me. So thank you, Mr. Taggart. 
And were you popular at school? Yeah, I was still wildly insecure. I was, the, I, you know, my mates were, I envy my mates. They were already good at sport. They got into the school football teams. I was, I was useless. I envied them, you know. Uh, and so I did, I guess I did use humour to try and bond that way. But I, yeah, I had a, if you have a, a couple of good mates when you're a teenager, you're, you've got a great life. I used to laugh so hard at school. I loved secondary school. I really, really did. I, I had a really good bunch of friends and we, we made each other a laugh. And whenever I look back upon those years, I always do it fondly. I can still remember the whiff of insecurity and the desperation to know, will your life work out all right? And girls and what's going to happen to me and all that. But I also remember laughing a lot and enjoying myself immensely. It's great fun growing up in the 80s. I don't envy my kids now being teenagers now one bit. Are you uh, still mates with any of those kids from school? Yeah, still in contact on Facebook and stuff like that. They're always like, I think all my friends, when I announced that I was moving to Australia, they were like, why are you doing that? No one does that. In their 40s, it's all about stability, predictability, comfort zones. You've worked so hard to get to where you are. Enjoy it, you know, wait for that gig on Radio 2 to come up. You know, <laughs> Ken Bruce or Steve Wright to go under a bus. Just wait for this, wait it out. You know, and it was that that was the life that they thought was ahead of me. And, and they all thought I was crazy. And now, now they're sort of like, oh, um, you know, oh, what did you, what did you see? <laughs> did you know what was about to come? I'm like, I had no idea. Um, but yeah, I am in touch with some of them. Yeah. And t- were you into music, you guys, back then? Yeah, I was always into music. Mum got me into that as a, as a real young kid, like six or seven. She would stick on Bob Marley, Bob Seger, Bruce Springsteen. So someone had Garfunkel. It was just the music that was in the house. I didn't know later on as, uh, as a grown-up, like, what a cool musical education. And so there was always music around, mum, not dad. And uh, as a kid, I was obsessed with music. All my pocket money went on vinyl. Yeah, I was. Uh, you'll love this, though. Obviously, in the 80s, I was a big fan of, of Wham! and Spandau Ballet and U2. But I was the only teenager in my school in the 80s who was also obsessed with Elvis Presley. I was not Mr. Zeitgeist, right? It was like a secret thing, my Elvis obsession. I've, I still love Elvis, but I really loved Elvis so much. I remember going to, you know, those barbers where you sit in a circle and wait, and wait for the chair to become available for like five quid, Mr. Tops. Yeah. I took a photo of Elvis in. I was 14. And it was one of those places where you just got short back and sides. It wasn't like a stylist. <laughs> I gave him this photo of Elvis. And he, he smoked this guy. He smoked roll-ups to tell you how long ago it was. He, was, he had a roll-up just hanging out of his mouth. He went, what? I went, can you make me look like Elvis? And that would take like facial reconstruction. And he went, hang on a minute. He went out the back and I heard him go, Elvis Presley. And like gales of laughter. And then I looked round, a door opened a bit and there were two other faces with him. There were six eyes looking at me. The door shut again and they were just screaming with laughter at some clueless 14-year-old who thought that for five quid I could look like Elvis Presley. I came out looking like, um, maybe Elvis when, you know, when he joined the army and he got national service like that. I think you kind of got the quiff though, haven't you? Is that a little nod to uh, Elvis? Sadly, it still is, yeah. And I still love a leather jacket. I can't wear them now. I wore one a couple of months ago, right, with my black leather jackets. And one of my kids went, oh God, you look like an undercover cop. And I went, what? Uh, and I took it off. <laughs> I think they were right. It might be now at 48. You can't, 
you just look a bit sad walking around in a leather jacket. It's just too much. And that feels like I'm hanging up part of me, to be honest. Maybe that's right. I'm doing this in, in the closet. My wife's sort of walking wardrobe because it's nice and soundproof and I can hide from my family in here. I'm looking at my five leather jackets and I can't imagine pulling any off now. You know, maybe, the, maybe it's time to say goodbye to the king. What do you think? Because a lot of colleagues and, and friends will only know you for the, the leather jackets. What do you think a leather jacket says about a man? <laughs> <laughs> says a man who's struggling to accept that he's not in his 20s anymore. That's what it screams. We all know that. You're being too polite, you know, by trying to get me to join the dots here. <laughs> Uh, I'm really not. <laughs> I got a leather jacket and I love to wear it, but I am on at that tipping point where I'm not sure that I can carry it off anymore. Who cares? Um, let's, let's, let's wear them anyway. <laughs> when did you first get into stand up, Christian? Uh, I did my first stand up gig when I was 18 at the room of a back of a pub. And I went on after an amateur magician who died on his backside. <laughs> Great starting comedy. He couldn't get the dove out of the hat. And uh, were you confident enough to do a story on the back of that? Yes, I was. It was the only laugh I got. What a little shit 18 going up there and going, um, there was this noise from the magician as he was packing up stuff while I started. And I was only 18 and I went, I think the doves just quit. And it got a huge laugh. And I remember the face on this guy. I thought he was going to beat me up. But yes, I, I remember having the balls and the rudeness and the chops to realise, let's make something about that. Whenever you come up with a joke and you're doing stand-up and they know you've just made it up on the spot, those are the jokes where they always go, oh my God, did you just see what he just did? He just, he just did a magic trick in front of her eyes. He just did something special. They know you've got stuff you've said before. But when you do something like that, they're always like, oh, my God. They know that that can't work tomorrow. Uh, so that was when you said you were 18, yeah? Mm. My dad had to drive me there, and I begged him to stay in the car park, right? Don't come in. And he, and he did, bless him. I'd have snuck in. So this was just as you were about to start uni, I guess? I didn't know whether to go to uni. I took a year out, had an awful job working in an estate agent, and I realised very quickly, good God, uh, I don't want to be doing this. And so I went to university. No one in my family had done it before, and Dad really kept saying, go to university. It was like, but Dad, I just want to get into stand-up or radio. And I went and had a job interview with a local radio station. I'd sent them my demo tape, and there's a guy called Chris Carnegie. And you're always grateful sometimes for the no's in your life. Chris Carnegie said, I could put you on air now. And I went, great, great. I'm going to be a DJ. And he said, but it would really harm your progress. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you've got the potential to be a really good storyteller about real life. And that's quite a rare talent. And for you to do that, you need to go and have a life for a couple of years. I went, but it'd be really hard to get back into radio. He went, exactly. And that will make you a better presenter. So there's too many young presenters like you on air that have had an, kind of an arrested development. They don't know nothing about life. He goes, you've got real potential to do something. I was distraught, but looking back now, what a lovely thing he did for me. You know, and I, the radio I do, I do talk about real life. I'm obsessed with it. I think the ordinary is the extraordinary. I think there's real magic in the everyday stuff we do. And it was really hard to get back into radio. And I worked in telesales for a year and a half. I now look back, what great training. It was cold calling mainly. 
or great training, speaking to people that don't want to hear from you. It was getting me ready for moving to Australia <laughs> when no one did want to hear from me for the first year. So, yeah, I look back now and uh, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, yeah, um, storytelling, going back to that, I, I agree. It's absolutely everything. And it is kind of the basis of what you've done and you've developed that massively and I think led the way in many ways, certainly when you were over here. It became a, a thing and it, I think to a point maybe even... It's so far removed from when you talked about Steve Wright, from what Steve Wright does. But I think there was a certain amount of reinvention of radio when you started doing that, particularly on commercial radio. Yeah, you're right. I was. I think when you start out as a stand-up or any kind of uh, endeavour like that, what we do, Chris, um, I think you do, and it's natural. You shouldn't feel ashamed of that. You wear your influences on your sleeves. And mine, I'm sure, Danny Baker, Chris Evans... Steve Wright in the afternoon must have been there in the early days and then as you go along people help you along the way mentors and I had many many mentors and still do help me shed those and lose those crutches and if I could describe my career as one thing it's simply become being more me that's a lot simpler than it sounds because it's actually very hard but being more me the more me I am the better I am the better connection I have the truer I am and you get buzzwords like authenticity and all that bollocks so yeah you're right I did I did go through a bit of a reinvention and I suddenly realised and I had a couple of very good mentors who were like, your gift is storytelling and that's what you should build your show around. And so I do, and the thing I like doing about it, Chris, is I'll tell a story on the show to then use that to get other stories from listeners, whether it's them calling in or emailing, and I love that now. I really love that. Um, yeah. So it's, it's to start the conversation going. That's what it's about, yeah. really. I told a story the other morning about uh, John Grant lending me his gloves once and uh, mentioning that on the back of playing John Grant turned into amazing stories from so many people about the times that they've worn pop stars gloves. See, that is gold. What a lovely, charming, joyous bit of radio that would have been. I love radio like that. I mean, don't we need that to be like that beam of little light just coming out the radio right now in the world, the tough times that people are having? That's brilliant. You're doing it yourself, Chris. <laughs> well, actually, I think you kind of modestly swerved my point there about what you were doing when you started doing the story stuff. I don't think there was a lot of that, particularly on commercial radio. So I wasn't so much talking about your own reinvention. I, I think that you actually led the way for others feeling more able to do that on the, the kind of rigid formats of commercial radio. Yeah, I mean, oh God. You're going to swerve it again, aren't you? <laughs> I, I'm terrible, aren't I? Uh, you're listening, though. First couple of years of my career, and you've read my book, it's in there. I, I did struggle against those conventions, and I never thought of myself as a rule breaker, but I have definitely blazed my own path, as anyone should. And uh, I think it's harder now. They're just doing radio almost automatically without questioning, is that the only way to do? And the second question, is that the right way for you? You know, and even when I'm brainstorming with my team, we come up with ideas like, oh, that's a great idea. It's not the right one for me. It's not the right one for us. And you're as good as your nose what you leave out of a radio show as the stuff you put in as well. Both are really important. The no's sometimes are more defining than the yeses. And so in terms of storytelling with commercial radio, now, it wasn't really a thing. It was all about being a bit more obvious, trying to be topical, you know, and stuff like that. Whereas I always found that a bit easy and boring and, and wondering, do people really want that? And I just remember once hearing Jonathan Ross on a radio, his old Radio 2 show used to be amazing. And he told this incredible story about someone had knocked at the door collecting money 
for the starving in, in Africa. And Jonathan was like really rude to him because he's having this blazing row with his wife. And um, it gave this guy short shrift. Because Jonathan, Jonathan's a nice guy, he felt so bad he chased after this guy down the street. <laughs> and the guy thought Jonathan was chasing after him to have another go at him. And so started to sort of jog slightly. You know, and this is like, you know, it's only about 10 in the morning. And I just remember crying so much of that story. And they've always been, they were early signs to me going, look there, this is the magic in those stories about the the stuff that we all do, that gap between who we're pretending to be and who we really are, who we're secretly worried that people are going to find out. Uh, I, I find that just the best area uh, to be in. Yeah. The point you made uh, about it being hard at first, that, that's absolutely true, certainly for me. And, and I think the older I've got, the longer I've been doing it, the easier I, I find it to be personal, to, to share personal stories. But it, but it does take a while to get to that point, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and how crazy is that? Yeah. It's called personality radio, right? Personality means unique to your personal reality. And yet, you know, you flick around the radio. A lot of people have stopped listening to commercial radio in the morning, you know, in England and Australia. And I get it. They blame podcasts. It's not podcast's fault. It's you've made it too easy. You've insulted their intelligence. There's quite a homogenized kind of content and a lot of similar songs being played. You're talking about the same things, reality, TV, and it all just like stealing a living. You're not rocking up with an actual show to do. You're wasting people's time. And I think that's wrong. Mm, it's about conversation, isn't it? And about stories, like you say. Yeah, it is. And I think I'm so grateful to be allowed on the radio every day to talk about what's happened to me and what I think about things and ask the question, what do you think? Joining. You know, and I'm really grateful that I've got to do this. This has been my living. What a wonderful thing. What were the best times you had on the radio over here in the UK, Christian? They're often the small stories, actually. People always think it's the big highlights, like the showreel highlights. And, you know, I've had those. I've been very lucky to have those, you know, setting up a competition called Who's Calling Christian, where it was about listeners literally trying to book celebrities, guests to call me live on the show. And one of them, had had a heart transplant and asked, wrote a letter to the uh, number 10 p.m., Tony Blair, would he enter this radio competition? It might win him some money for our Heart Foundation. And Tony Blair called live from number 10 on a Friday morning at quarter to nine. And it was live. And it was like, God, this is radio. You know, wow, how is, is this? You know, Tony Blair's on the line, the Prime Minister. And Charlie Theron called in two days before that from a runway in Berlin. The pilot of a private jet was a fan of mine. He was refusing to take off until she entered the competition on his behalf. And those are real like, wow, this is really broadcasting without a net. Those are not the highlights. It was the little stories uh, from listeners on phone-ins and stuff like that. I remember once we were talking about, what did your dad bring home from work? A guy called in and said his dad used to fit carpets for very wealthy people around Windsor. One of his clients was Sir Elton John, and there was some leftover carpet. And his dad brought it home, and he put it in his um, sister's dollhouse. Uh, and I just thought, wow, he's got Sir Elton John's carpet in his sister's dollhouse. Those are the highlights that I'll always be grateful I had. It's funny, those bits uh, are the ones that always, that, always, that always stay in my heart, that. Uh, Christian, the kids' books, Radio Boy, kind of links to that about a kid with a secret radio show. You always sound so confident, but that, it's not necessarily the case for you, is it? And, and we'll get onto that in a little bit more detail in, in a moment. But um, presumably, Radio Boy was semi-inspired by your own life. Yeah, of course. He's mini-me. You know, I felt 
I had no real value as a teenager, like most of us do. And I felt different. I actually felt an outsider. And now there's a real value in that. I am a bit of an outsider. You know, I'm an outsider <laughs> at times on the radio. How I do radio made me an outsider of the industry, certainly commercial radio industry. I felt like I was doing radio. And then there were all the other commercial radio shows. And so I kind of embrace that as a mentality now. And that's what young Spike does. He does a secret radio show. I also thought it was a hopefully a message to the younger generation of future talkers. Don't wait for some radio station controller to give you permission. Get on with it. You've got now the means to get your voice out there that we never had. Use it. You know, don't send off demo tapes to some dullard running a radio station saying, can you let me on and have a show? Make the show you want to be doing. That, I, I, you know, I want to hear kids doing secret bunker radio shows, posting them up online when they're taking the mickey out the teachers and doing phone-ins. I really want to be able to get inspired by the joy and connection. What a great way to try and make sense of the world when you don't know how it all works or you're struggling trying to work out how you fit in. Talk about that. Yeah, wow, what an amazing thing to do. A radio show for teenagers by a teenager. Now that I'd listen to, that would be amazing. So it, it, was, it was all of that. Yeah, I, I loved writing those two books. Deeply, deeply love them. And I love it when I still get emails from mums or dads uh, or teenagers themselves or 12-year-olds saying, uh, I love the story. It's made me want to think about getting into radio, being a comedian, whatever. Hopefully it just makes them think, well, the thing that, you fear makes you odd that uniqueness that is the actual hidden gift you just don't realize it yet that's the real wonder in you that you can alchemize into gold i, I want to hopefully have that it was buried in there i didn't obviously say it like that because it'd be awful and a kid would throw it down i use my own children as fact checkers i kept printing off the chapters and they would come back marked up with like sharpie pens going no teenager would say this this is sort of thing an adult would write, saying a teenager would say this. And I was like, right, how would you say it? Well, they wouldn't, a teenager wouldn't be on Facebook, for example, really. No, there's no it's old people like you. It's 40-somethings, okay, looking for Thursday motivation quotes. And so it was a family effort as well, really. My mum, uh, my mum, my wife, uh, Dr. Freud, my wife <laughs> isn't a book editor, but she edited all, right? And it was a real family effort. I love that. It takes a certain kind of confidence to write the book. One of the things that I always loved about radio in the early days that I was doing it was how disposable it was. It was gone. It was into the ether. Obviously, that's not the case now. But when you're committing words to a page, I wonder, are you a completist? You know, how many times were you rewriting everything aside from all of that guidance, let's call it, from your family? I, uh, radio is ephemeral. It is. And I've always embraced that. No matter as good as you can get a show and you can finish it and go, that, that's about as best as I can do it. You know, there's another one tomorrow and there's five more next week and 200 more this year. And I accept that. It's very disposable. That's what it is. It's all about what you're making in the moment together, you and the listeners. And so with books, that's amazing. You know, there's this real, as a book nerd from an early age, it's a huge privilege, again, to be able to write a book and share it with the world. But you know that with radio, people forgive you some of the things you say. Well, it is early. You know, it's live. It's all ad-lib. There's no script. When you've written something down, there is this potency, and they know, oh, he's really thought about this. And that is that risk of being seen in a different way to being on the radio. But I, I really like that. I've missed writing. I would have carried on writing more of those books and written some more kind of books, I think, for young adults as well. But moving here changed that. So I hadn't really written until last year writing this book about the move here. And I, I hadn't realised how much I'd missed writing. I'd really missed it, actually, or that part of me. 
it's hard. It's such a slog compared to radio. It's a lot harder. Yeah, if it was easy, I guess we'd all be churning out books. But I'm always at my best when I'm working on something else as well. It's not good for me just to be doing the, a radio show. I, I, it's like cross-pollination. The challenges, having to learn some new skills, sharpen up the word magic, that always makes my radio show better. Also, I think you're topping up your soul. If you've got another little project which you know, isn't your bread and butter. It, uh, it's a passion thing. In the book, in No One's Listens to Your Dad's Show, you vividly describe a particular time when you felt like you couldn't go on air, when your anxiety was crippling, I guess. You, you talk about a time just before going on air. You say, I, I'm looking over a bin and vomiting. I'm having what I later found out was a panic attack. At the time, I seriously thought I was going to die. That's big stuff. Um, obviously, that became a pivotal moment in your life, didn't it? Yeah, um, it did. And my wife didn't want me to talk about any of that. She was trying to protect me because she knew that I, I haven't ever talked about this on air. And as someone who likes telling stories, it's interesting, isn't it? There's always a story that we don't want to share with people because I felt embarrassed, ashamed that that happened. And I'd moved through it. It was all quite, you know, terrifying. And I'd never had any fear before doing a radio show. Lots of fear in other areas of my life, but never never that. So it all felt very cruel. And I thought, crikey, if I can't do the radio show, I won't be able to do anything. And I guess, right or wrong, I built up an identity around doing that. And it had earned me and my family a great life. So suddenly having that right before going on air, I felt like I was losing my mind and literally my life, everything. It was a really dark time. But I went and got help. And, you know, there's also, I can say this having gone through it, there is sometimes, there's a gift and there's a wisdom sometimes in the things that happen to us as grown-ups, whether you're in your 40s like I was or your 20s, your teens and that, with help, you can learn from it. It made me realise that I, I was struggling a bit. I'd lost my mojo. It was all too easy. And I think I'd been like that for a couple of years. I think I'd been using alcohol to try and numb some of that down sometimes. And I needed something new. I needed a new challenge. There was a longing. And so that's already kick-started the move to Australia. So without the panic attacks, without that anxiety attack, and it wasn't just for one show, it went on for a couple of shows. And uh, I really thought, this is it. It's going to be the end of my career. And my wife, bless her, to take the pressure off, said, look, we'll sell the house. You could do something else. And I said, like, what? This is what I do. We've often talked about how you might like to have been a hairdresser. I went, yeah, but... I, I talked about it. You can't go and train at 45. To, you know, you're suddenly an apprentice washing people's hair going, aren't you the guy on the radio? What what happened to you? And, you, and you, you're trained to cut hair. It's like Daniel Day-Lewis when he went to become a cobbler in Ireland. I can't, I can't do that. But I got help and um, I grew through it, uh, which is an amazing thing to say. And so the long, short answer, I guess, is saying that I didn't want to fully share that story, but my kids were starting to have struggles. And I was saying how it's okay to struggle. Vulnerability always leads to connection. Our favourite moments with our friends sometimes are when they lean in and go, hey, I'm having a tough time with this. And you lean in yourself, don't you? And you have this wonderful heart connection. Your favourite conversations sometimes happen like that. So I was, I was saying this all to my kids about how vulnerability is hard, but it's really important. And I'm really saying I'm being a hypocrite. They don't even know this story about me having this uh, breakdown, really. Um, they just thought that wasn't very well. And so I, I wanted only to appear as that super dad to them. And actually, when you're a teenager, you don't want that from your dad. You need to know that he's human, that he struggles like you, but he can still be okay. And so I thought, oh, <laughs> that's the thing about vulnerability. It's hard. I'm going to tell the, the proper story of why I moved it, but if I'm going to tell that, I've got to go back to that bin and having to walk out the radio station so I'm not very well. And so I did. 
And that is the book. And the, the kids are really proud of it. I think they're more proud about me doing that, knowing that I'm scared and excited about the book coming out, than anything I've ever done. I think that says quite a lot, really. Are you saying that the panic text breakdown, it was actually not because you felt so much pressure, but actually because life was what too easy? Is that what you're saying? No, if only it was that. No, I think I'd been struggling for a while. And sometimes when something like that happens, anxiety, depression, it's also a chance to look at other areas, really. It's normally a warning signal that's been getting louder and louder as you ignore it for a while. And then it, it sort of demands your attention. There are various forms that it manifests itself. And that had been happening to me. I didn't feel any pressure. And it wasn't like I need pressure. It was just... You know, it was many areas of our life, our personal life as well. And it was all denying how I really felt that I want another really big challenge. I wanted to learn some new skills. And the only way you do that is by really taking a fuck off leap into the unknown. You can't do that in a little increment. Was uh, Melbourne the right move then? Yeah. Didn't feel like that in the first year many times. But I knew I couldn't go back even when it was like really hard. Yeah, it wasn't really about Melbourne. It was about following what's in your heart, even if you don't know whether it's going to work out. And I think, what a great example to my kids. They know how the ratings struggled. Ratings in Australia, I just need to understand, even if you don't know a lot about radio, they are brutal. They're out every five weeks. Obviously, in the UK, it's every three months. They're out every five weeks. So straight away, the, like the tempo, the speed on the running machine just got turned way up. And ratings here are on the news in the evening. It's in the newspaper, right? So every, I just keep seeing fate, uh, pictures of my face at the bottom of a graph going down. And it was like, oh, God, why did I come to somewhere more competitive? <laughs> I'm now really thinking I made a big mistake. They called it a comfort zone for a reason. I need the comfort zone. Why, why did I choose this after everything that happened? But what I learned and coming through all of that was life-changing on and off air. Why is the Australian radio market so competitive? Have you met an Australian? Have you seen them at sport, right? They've got, to, they've got to win everything. They don't like losing. They don't like losing to the English. The Ashes don't exist in any other sport. It's an incredible tournament. That speaks to the relationship between the, the Australians and the English. And it's quite a unique relationship. And they love, they love English sense of humour. They love English comedians when they come over and tour. And Graham Norton's a big show over here as well. They just don't want to hear you. Or they didn't when I started. First thing in the morning or on their radio. So, yeah, it's far more competitive here. Financially, the commercial radio market, although there are less people listening than the UK, is far bigger than all of UK commercial radio. It's crazy. There's a lot of money at stake, I guess. So that's why they fight over 0.1%. And, they, you know, they really are ruthless, the way they talk about it as well, like smashing the opposition. And I'm thinking... It's just talking. It's just talking between the songs. And uh, what songs uh, do you like playing on the radio? You mentioned Nickelback. Um, I'm assuming not Nickelback. I don't mind Nickelback. I've got nothing against Nickelback. I just use them sometimes. Uh, they're like a stat easy punchline. Uh, I've got nothing against Nickelback. Um, what songs do I really love? I am a big music fan. I listen to lots of different music. Really, when I'm at home. Now, about a year and a half ago, like a lot of people my age, I bought a vinyl player and started to buy back all that vinyl I used to have, but at vast costs. And it's lovely hearing it again. You know, Elvis and the Stones and Led Zepp and David Bowie and the Beatles. But in terms of songs I play on the radio, I love a song that's got a real spirit to it. And Disposable Pop can do that. 
Climby Fisher's Love Changes is a beautiful love song as good as the Beatles, in my mind. It is. There's something pure. Wow. There's a, a sweetness to it with an infectious, catchy hook. Just as good as uh, Lennon McCartney. Uh, you know, I love Springsteen. I love playing music that has an energy to it as well. I get really annoyed at breakfast time when I have to play something like R.E.M. Everybody Hurts. You know, and I don't want it all manic and frenzied. I like the tone and light and shade, but that to me is just like, oh, God. Say you're, uh, you know, on a run of some funny stories from the coolers and then suddenly you go into, everybody hurts. Time for the first of your five picks from the 45 in this record box I've got here. So they're all on 45 sleeves. You just need to say when and I'll pick one out, okay? When? Where did it all go right? Oh, where did it all go right? First of all, being told, no, you're not going on the radio at 18. I had an interview with a radio station boss. I'd sent him my demo tape. Uh, This was now quite early on in my career, about 20 years ago. And he said, uh, I already had two big job offers. And he said, I didn't like any of your demo tape. And I was so annoyed. I was thinking, why am I even with this clown? He said, I didn't like any of it. I only kept listening to it because I thought there might be a newsreader or something on there that I might want to hire. And then I found you. And I went, what do you mean? He goes, at the end, you told me a story. And he goes, that, I don't want to hear topical one-liners about Michael Jackson, right, that anyone can do. That, that's you. That's all you should be doing. Build a show around that. So he was saying, I don't do what everybody else does. That's when it started to go right, when I realized what I'm not. And again, it goes back to being true to ourselves. And that doesn't just stand to being on a radio. Whenever you're being true to yourself, that better part of you, that wiser self, you're never going to make wrong decisions. But it's actually so hard, isn't it? Finding or trusting what that voice is. Because sometimes there's other little parts of you that are trying to shout it down. Or, you know, you hear that thing, don't you, that people say a lot. You know, my head says this, but my heart says this. You're like, why, why not listen to your heart? You know, why not listen to you? Why have you got to listen to your head? But we do that quite a lot. So where did it go right? It went right when I started to trust myself more, I guess. And less trying to do an impression of what I thought a radio DJ was. Yeah, and I think that counts as great advice. And Sarah has been a massive influence on your decision making, hasn't she? Yeah. I mean, you can't do what I did in my mid-40s and throw your life away walk out on all that success and all that comfort zone, sell your house that you've had for 10 years to risk it all when you've also got two kids. Huge responsibility unless you have a partner like mine. Because at one point I said, don't want to do this. I can't guarantee that radio show out there is going to work. I could get fired really easily. And she said, I don't mind that because I know that you'll do your best to have a great radio show. It won't be because the radio show wasn't good. It'll just be because they weren't good enough for you. And I thought, oh God. She goes, I think actually you'll regret it more if you say no. I don't think you'll be able to live with it. What a great thing to say. She must have been terrified. She must have done. She never said it, but I know she would have done. And it was tough on her moving here. She had a great network of friends. I thought she might have got a mention in response to where did it all go right, to be fair. Did I not mention that? Well, uh, not until I did. Where did it all go wrong when I didn't mention my wife? (laughs) How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. This is amazing. You know, he's making me a cup of tea. When I'm having a tough morning, I think about someone like me, stuck in traffic right now, who may not be looking forward to doing their job, and the gratitude I have for my life, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll crack on. Another dip into the box, Christian, you say when? When? 
<laughs> What's the most famous you've ever felt? Oh, great question. Doing an interview with Sir Elton John round at his house in his kitchen, and beforehand he made me a cup of tea, right? That was like, this is amazing. You know, he's making me a cup of tea. And he was like really funny, and we did the interview, and at one point during it he had a, you know, a trademark Elton John meltdown. He actually said the C word at one of his underlings. And I felt like I was getting all of Elton John. It was like brilliant. And uh, even at the end of the interview, he goes, oh, he goes, I don't think I've been interesting enough. Name a celebrity and I'll tell you what I really think of them. So I just started reeling off people and he would say whether he liked them and why. And I loved all of it, right? I kept going. This went on for 20 minutes. And as I was walking out of his mansion, right, his PR person went, you won't be using any of that last 20 minutes. And I went, yeah, of course. What was I thinking about? The other thing was we did a competition to take two listeners on Coldplay's private jet from a private airfield in London to Hamburg in Germany, fly with the band before they did a big sold-out gig at a football stadium in Hamburg, uh, and then fly back with them that night. It was on a Friday. And that was fascinating, amazing. I remember getting off the private jet with Chris Martin, and there were all these blacked-out limos, and it was like, wow, this is what it must be to be a rock star. And then I remember looking at all of them, look, reading the newspaper, and they looked so bored. Because, of course, it would get boring. And beforehand, it all felt so boring. You're waiting around. You know, they were playing like five-a-side with some of the crew and techies. And, but to me, it was just, it was like going behind the curtain. The Wizard of Oz and just seeing it from the other point of view. And I remember just thinking it was amazing. And then the thing was, after the gig, I was the only one having a beer. The band just wanted to get home, right? They just want to get home and be in their own beds. And I remember being on the private jet, and I was the only one having another beer. You know, I thought, surely rock stars get, it's Friday night. You know, why am I the only one drinking? And Chris Mark was having like a, you know, hot honey with lemon for his voice. And the rest of the band were like, you know, had headphones on, were going to sleep. And the only guy drinking, the wild man there was, was me. And so it was strange, but wonderful. And what an experience of two listeners to see all of that. That's your favourite band. But that felt pretty famous, just being an onlooker, but right in their camp. Do you think you always wanted to be famous? Uh, if I'm really honest, there was that part insecure teenager thought that if I ever did become famous, then I'd somehow feel complete. I wouldn't feel that insecurity anymore. But what happened was when I got on TV and I got famous, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. It hasn't filled up this hole that's in me. What? I thought you'd just be like, oh, no. What do I do now? And then you realise that's not the job of it. That's not what it's about, you know. And so that's, I guess, another moment of when it went right, when I realised it's not about that. That won't ever fill you up. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people when they get famous. And then when they realise you're still the same person on the inside. Yeah. Before your next question, Christian, I do need to know how Elton John makes a cup of tea. Can you describe that? Uh, can I just say, to be honest, it took him a bit of a while because he made this big show of like showing that he was a real person, right? Like, like you all do when you invite someone around. You go, you want a tea? Do you want a coffee? It's a nice thing, isn't it? It's a British thing. Do you want tea? How do you take it? Milk? Two sugars? How do you take it? Elton was trying to do all of this, right? <laughs> and then obviously he's in this massive kitchen. It's just like the biggest kitchen I've ever been in. And he starts opening, opening covered doors, right? And then I start joining in and he looks at me like, what the, th the fuck do you think you're doing? There's, there's levels to this. You don't just start opening up my drawers. You know, and I was like, oh, sorry. And then he was like slamming them. And then he was like shouting out to people, they're fucking cups. 
you know, and I was just like, this is amazing. Um, he, he didn't have a clue. All he knew how to operate was the kettle and fill it up with water. I actually had a feeling that he just hired the place for this interview. I don't know. I still don't know to this day. Was that his house? Because it looked like the first time he'd ever been in that kitchen. <laughs> He, uh, he gave a friend of mine his number and he said, don't, don't, for obvious reasons, don't save it as Elton John. Put me in as Rocket Man. I love that. I love that. That's amazing. Oh, that story is great. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got those names in our phones, haven't we, for yeah. friends or like a dad on the school run. Just put down a school run dad with the beard. And then someone's got Rocket Man. And you, you're probably looking at it going, oh, that must be some mate who's got some ironic nickname, yeah, yeah. you know. And then you don't realise, no, it is actually the Rocket Man. If, if I ever had Springsteen's, I'd put him in as the boss. Because no boss, one's going to think, oh, that'd be Springsteen. That'd be Springsteen. Calling Christian. <laughs> All right, then next into the box again. Say when. Okay. When? I think you pretty much answered this, but well, we'll see. Question four is: Is there a secret to being a great DJ? Someone tell me. Seriously, someone tell me because if it was as simple as that, a formula you had to apply, but then what, what, that'd be so boring. I've been reading this book by Sarah Lewis, I think her name is, called Rise. It's an amazing book. You would love it. I keep recommending it to so many people. She starts with this opening story about how she went to observe an archery team, a ladies' archery team, and how the value of the near miss, it's not about getting the bullseye, it's about aiming at it. And then even when you miss it, it's about trying to get it again. It's in the trying. And that's what radio is to me. I'm never going to do the perfect radio show. It's all about still being in the game. It's still about, it's about whatever mastery is. It's learning and doing it again tomorrow, thinking, what can I learn? Or that didn't work. How do I change this sentence? Or what am I not saying in this link? Or what am I trying to say here? I'm not getting it right. What's it really about that? Yeah, don't you think, though, that um, the near misses are in a public place and it's exposing? And potentially debilitating, so perhaps can have the reverse effect. Don't they want to hear a human on the radio? I love it sometimes. When the show goes sideways or falls over, I'll go, this is sucking. You deserve more. You know, I'm going to play a song. When we come back, I'll try and reset the show. That's human. They do that in their jobs. They shouldn't have to fail. If you're a plumber and you screwed up some U-bend, you wouldn't feel like, oh, it's debilitating. You're going, oh, I ballsed it up today at work. That's the same for me. I'm doing it live. It's early in the morning. Was that easy? Of my listeners, go and do your own radio shows. It's tough sometimes at six o'clock in the morning when you've had a massive row with your wife that you're still going through in your head. Suddenly the song ends, you're like, hey, yeah, good morning. It's Monday morning. Welcome to the show. And you're thinking, I'd, I'd fucking be here. I'm not in the mood for this. You've got three hours to do. I don't feel funny right now. I feel tense. I feel angry. I want to kick the bin. And that call has dropped off. And what the fucking producer's doing? You're going through all this stuff. But I remember what it was like when I worked in sales, listening to Chris Tarrant and Chris Evans and just being so jealous. Like, how do I get from this ironing board in this bedsit in Tooting to anywhere near the Emerald Isle? And I always remember what the value of hearing someone funny, entertaining, to make you smile and make you laugh in the morning for 10 or 15 minutes. So I love Danny Baker's morning edition on the early version, first version of Five Live. Uh, you know, in Summer May on Radio One Breakfast, I, the value of what they gave to me in that moment in the morning and now I, I never stop thinking about that when I'm having a tough morning or I'm like I'm tired today yeah. I think about someone like me stuck in traffic right now who may not be looking forward to doing their job and the gratitude I have for my life I'm like yeah I'll, I'll crack on yeah I get that and 
I feel the same. But it is frustrating when you get into a groove, you know, and it can last not just for one or two shows, but it can go on for a while. We just feel like it just won't click for some reason. And really, all you're doing, as you've repeatedly said, is telling stories about your life and introducing songs. How can that not work? And how can it not work for the next day and the next day and the next? But that's the same with life. You know, how can you not have another great day like you did today? It's the same thing. How can you not always not have a great relationship with your partner, your children, yourself? Sometimes you look back and go, oh True. my God, why did I say that to That's my a- wife an hour ago? What a monster. That's a you great know. point, you know. I, it's I, the same. I, that is what it is to be human. And if you're going to be human on the radio and not be all slick, and please don't, Chris, because no one wants any more shiny DJs. They're androids. It's AI. <laughs> all right? If they want a human, then that means what's the most human thing is our flaws is getting it wrong. Please, my advice to you, my friend, is found flamboyantly. Can't even say it. There you go. I made a mistake. (laughs) This is uh, feeling increasingly like terrific therapy. So thank you, Christian. The last question from the box. Say when. When. Okay. Oh, there's three parts to this one. Um, Respond to the following. What difference does it make? Okay. What a yeah, great question in a song title. What difference does it make? Yeah, we all feel like that sometimes. Like, what is the point of me doing this? Whatever it is, what is the point? I guess the point is to feel that and still do it. What difference does it make? It makes a bigger difference when you don't try to try and make something different and better and it comes from your heart. Or thinking, what difference does it make? I just shut up. No, it makes every bit of difference. You know, lean into life, lean into the risks, lean into the ache. Don't look away, you know, look towards it. You know, be your own. It's like those fairy tales, you know, and you read it and the hero turns up. Be your own hero. There's a great book I'm reading at the moment called Life is in the Transitions. It's fascinating. It's all about these stories that happen to us in our lives. You know, our lives don't have a linear shape. They're squiggles, they oscillate, all kinds of shit happens. And that's also where the incredible stuff happens as well. So, yeah, what difference does it make? It makes every bit of difference. Sitting on the sidelines, keeping quiet. No. One day we'll be on our deathbeds. And I think you'll regret more what you didn't do, the risks you never took, the corner you didn't walk round. You'll regret that more. Don't do that. Let your life be a showreel of all these amazing risks you took. Nope, somebody fell flat on your face and you brushed yourself off and it gave you a funny story to tell somebody. Brilliant response. Uh, And next, are you experienced? Nope. I am a, I remember when I was a teenager, I got into karate and um, I had this amazing teacher. It was a local hairdresser called Simon, but he would insist that we call him sensei. And I love this because he was the local hairdresser, but he, you know, I loved the kind of bowing and the hierarchy that was there. And he brought in this guest instructor one day. It was a Japanese man. And afterwards I went up to him. He's called Mr. Tanaka, I think. It's a fearsome character, and he was like breaking boards and the whole dojo. And there were some very hard men in that. There were some European champions. There were some bodyguards. There were some bouncers. There were some coppers. And they were all terrified of Mr. Tanaka. And there was hardly anything to him, but he just exuded this menace. Anyway, afterwards, I went up to him, and I was shaking. And I said, oh, I'm uh, just a white belt, you know. And uh, he went like this to me. It was like some other karate kid. He goes, he did spit like this to me. He went, son, I am white belt too and I went well, I thought it was a joke right so I sort of smiled awkwardly. he goes white belt mindset always always white belt always learning always 
I didn't know at the time what on earth he was on about. Um, now I think, what a great thing, white belt mindset. I think it's a Zen thing, isn't it? You know, like for us, don't get into the fact, yeah, I've done thousands of radio shows, I should be experienced. Be in that beginner's mindset. What will I learn today? How will I learn to tell this story differently? Um, I love that. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah, very. Always white belt. And uh, what's new, Pussycat? (laughs) (laughs) What's new, Pussycat? What a great question. Please call a new podcast that. What is new, Pussycat? I guess actually what's new and scary right now on my immediate horizon is my book. And it's scary because it's not a normal kind of book. And, you know, I talked about why it scares me, but that is, oh, that's new. That's raw. That's a leap. It's... If moving to Australia was the biggest gamble I've ever done in my life, this is the next biggest one. Or so it feels to me. It's brilliant, Christian. Uh, Really brilliant. I loved it. In fact, fact, so much so that I read it in one sitting. Thank you for being there, Christian. There are your five questions from the box done. Just got a handful of quick fires for you now. Do you do quick fire answers? Yep. We'll see. What song did you do? I heard that. (laughs) Dick, wasn't it? No. Remember, Chris, white belt, white belt mindset. Uh, what song did you do for your first dance at your wedding? Oh, it was on the soundtrack to Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah, get the soundtrack, and it's on there. Hey, were you good? One of quick answers. Did you do a good dance? No, is that awkward fumble? It's not like it is yeah. now when you've got attention-seeking idiots who've been having lessons. It was that awful slow dance and then everyone now charges in drunkenly. That's how it should be. <laughs> so the uh, Romeo and Juliet soundtrack is where to go to find <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the tracks on there. Yeah, you said you wanted a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> is there a song that you love to play on the radio that always fires you up? Yes, Springsteen, Born to Run. Yeah. My favourite bit. Two bits, really. Favourite bit isn't the intro. That's the second favourite bit, right? It's when he goes, I think it's like two and a half minutes into it, when he goes, two, three, four, dun, 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 That is my favourite bit of it. I'll just have that. Only that 10 second bit of my funeral. Where do you stand on on intros? I went through a phase, right? And I bet bosses hated me. This is in the early days where... I refused to play a song if it didn't have a big intro or a great intro. I couldn't stand the moment that had a soft fade. Obviously, I grew out of that because it's ridiculous. But there are those DJs that talk right up to the vocal. Get a life. No one is impressed. <laughs> I remember being even annoyed with Steve Wright in the afternoon once. I don't know why I keep calling him Steve Wright in the afternoon. <laughs> like, that's his name. But Full we know name. it is. It's in his passport. Uh, surname, Wright in the afternoon. First name, Steve. He talks over the You know when you used to record songs off the radio? And I was recording um, Fight for Your Right to Party, and Steve talked all over the 30 seconds of it. And I remember being so angry with my radio hero. I, I, and I've done it myself sometimes, <laughs> but people aren't recording. You know, if you're getting annoyed at me in the issue, you know, from where we are now, because I'm talking over the songs, there's something wrong with you. It's not my fault. How brave of Steve, even Steve Wright talking over the end of that one, by the way. Well, he's a wild man. He's the original wild man of radio. We know that. And he's not called Steve Wright. Steve Wright in the afternoon. Get it right, Chris. Uh, have you got a favourite three in a row? I have never, ever played three in a row on any radio show. I've had to play two in a row once because I was crying and I needed to get some time. Um, so I did have to. And people were texting in going, is everything all right? Because they were like, oh, my God, what's he doing playing two songs in a row? So I've never played three in a row. I, no, I've, I've never done that. My boss would, would say, what are we paying him for? What's he doing playing three in a row here? I've never done three in a row. Have you ever had a blazing row while you're playing a song on the radio? Yeah, of course. Yeah, producers, co-presenters. 
my boss once, early days of XFM, came in and started telling me about something he didn't like that I talked about in the middle of the show. I went, we can talk about this at the end of the show, but don't ever come in here and start to talk about it while we're on air. The song's got a minute left. You're just making it harder. So, yeah, I remember that That was a real big blazing one. You get used to, don't you, um, having these disjointed conversations in the studio where once you've worked with someone for a while, you, you kind of, there's just like a weird code where you can break off a conversation and you either just pick up weirdly when the next song's on or it's just gone forever. Yeah. I remember once on XFM again, Meatloaf came in as a guest and he was fascinating. And he uh, it was only meant to be 20 minutes. And he said, oh, I'm going to stay longer if it's all right. I love this. I was like, yeah, fine. Okay. And, you know, during the song, he suddenly started to cry. Right? Like, I mean, really silently sobbing. And I said, are you okay? And he was like, oh, God, I just don't know. And then the song ended, right? <laughs> My colleagues were like, go on there, monkey boy. Earn your money. And I, I didn't know whether to say meatloaf. Because the poor guy was obviously having a moment, but the song's ended. And he put his hand up like, don't come to me. And so I didn't want to draw attention to. So, you know, listeners have heard that Meatloaf was staying on for a bit longer. We just start to have a chat as if Meatloaf wasn't just in the studio looking at his hands, poor guy. And they go, anyway, what are you doing this weekend? You know, and there's Meatloaf sat there. And whether it's looking at each other like, this is carry on. All right, this is just say, this is normal. Mr. Loaf's having a moment. And yeah, I do, I do. Yes, you can have these wild, very deep, profound conversation. And suddenly two minutes later, you're, and you're back in the room. Do you have any scores that you'd like to settle? No. Oh God, I, I grew out of all that. Years ago, I did. That, that way lies madness, all that stuff. Do you know any of the um, other breakfast show hosts down in Melbourne? Uh, yeah, yes. It's, uh, they're, all, it's a, they're, they're really supportive. It is very competitive. But at the end of my first three weeks here, one of my biggest rivals, he was like the mayor of here, unofficial mayor. He was the chairman of our, one of the biggest AFL teams in Melbourne. He was like, uh, he did uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on TV every night. It's huge. Reached out to me, never met the guy, and uh, he took me out for lunch just to say, hey, welcome. And he said, uh, you'll end up being number one. And there was no evidence of that. I said, oh, I don't know about that. He goes, no, no, you will. Just keep going. Just keep showing up. It needs to happen. You know, we all need to kick up the backside. And he was like, here's my phone number. If you or your wife ever need anything or you're in the spot, please just call and let me know. And I always thought, what a lovely thing to say and do. Take someone out for lunch and say, hey, welcome. If you ever need yeah. anything, you know, I'm here. I thought that was a remarkable act of kindness. I wonder, would I do that to someone in London who'd have rocked up years ago? I doubt it. But there is room for everyone, isn't there? Oh, my word, yeah. I mean, crying out loud. There's millions of people. I've never been one of those that gets upset if people go, I don't listen to your radio show. It's like, it's okay, there's enough that, that do. You don't, you don't have to, it's a choice. You talk about that, don't you, in the book? <laughs> people seem to take great they pride. They love to say it. I get it a lot. <laughs> Why say it? You know, you wouldn't do it in any other industry. I said, if you met a plumber at a party, you wouldn't go, you're not my plumber. My wife's a, a weather presenter on the television, and um, people might say to her in, in the supermarket, do I know, I know you, did you used to, did we go to school together and all, all of that? And the, well, occasionally I will jump in to save everyone's blushes and just say, oh, Claire does the, the weather on the tele. And this is almost always the response is, it's, no, it won't be from there. I never watch television. Whatever. <laughs> what you never, I mean, literally, she's been on it for 20 years. And you have literally, that's definitely not it, right? You're still convinced that you went to school together. Even yeah, though why would it be the thing she actually does? You're quite right. Yeah, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Uh, one last question for you, uh, Christian. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event with a, a caveat 
that you, Christian O'Connell, have to play the last three songs on earth, what would they be? This is incredible. You're, you're literally the last DJ, like that brilliant Tom Petty song. In fact, that should go in there. That's a bonus track because he's got that line in the song, The Last DJ, there goes the last DJ. So I guess I would be the last DJ. Bang. We kick off with, of course, Born to Rum by the aforementioned Bruce Springsteen. Then we go into a song that um, I used to play to my daughters when they were babies, and I don't know why, uh, but whenever I play it, it makes me think of them and just what it is to become a dad, a parent when they're babies. And it literally cracks your heart wide open, and you've never felt this huge surge of love like that. And it almost feels like it's going to kill you because it's just so powerful. And the song is Jackie Wilson, Your Love keeps lifting me higher and higher and whenever i hear that it's a beautiful song you know about love what it does to us and so yeah that would be the second one for me and then the last song i played the last song for anyone on earth would be the king if i can dream from the 68 comeback special one of my favorite songs ever that if i can dream i love the song it's like a hymn it's some sort of gospel stuff yeah if i can dream and there's even a line in it Somewhere there's a light in the darkness. And there's a pause for a beat or two before he says, somewhere. You know, and I love that. It's like a poet when they read it out and they've got the phrasing right. And just that gap dropping in that somewhere is beautiful to me. That would be the last song. What a way to go. Christian playing that, stood there at the decks in his leather jacket. I'd get them to pay me before, I think the leather jacket's on, I'd get them to pay me up cash up front, please, because the world's going to end and I don't want to come looking for you to pay my invoice. Christian, thank you so, so, so much. Um, it's been a joy. Genuinely, you're very, very good at what you do. You're a great conversationist. I, I mean, well, you are. Come on. Let's agree we're white belts together, Chris. That's our new podcast, Two White Belts. Christian's book is a brilliant read it's inspiring it's very openly honest it's sad at times and it's funny a lot of the time and it's called no one listens to your dad's show thank you so much christian o'connell it's been such a pleasure thank you christian it's been my deep joy and pleasure thank you very much chris and that was how to dj thanks for listening please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from 